The following segment of Critical Weave Theory will have major, major, major spoilers for Akudama Drive um, and mild content warnings for abuse and violence. Other than that, make sure to check out our guest, Soviet Winter Prison, and um, the channel he contributes to, Weeb Revolution. Enjoy. I shield very hard for this show to anyone who talked to me when it was airing like episode two i'm like okay everybody's got to watch this with me and that's the story of how i ended up just shilling it to everyone i think i i binged like god i binged like eight episodes in the night i just like i because after we watched the first few episodes together i was like I should probably I should probably get some sleep, and I didn't get some sleep. I just watched the rest of the episodes, and I was like, Raghava, <laughs> Raghava, <laughs> listen. Well, move over MP2s, MP3s, and mana points. This isn't an isekai. This is critical weeb theory. Is that joke gonna make sense? <laughs> I mean, it was brilliant. <laughs> Okay, you know what we're gonna do? We're not gonna put the context in. And the people are just gonna be like, what are they talking about? I, I feel like people would know what an MP3 is, but... Yeah, but they, but they won't know why we started talking about it. No, they won't. And they never will. Listen, I wanna be mysterious for today. Don't talk down to our audience here. We're here to talk- Listen, I'll talk down to whoever I want. That's Talking down to people isn't going to start the revolution, though. You know this. I know. Anyway. Um, this week we have a person of winter, a Soviet winter person. Would you like to introduce yourself? I would very much like to. Thank you. Good. I, I'm glad you do. I am Soviet winter prison. I'm, uh... Oh, you're winter prison. Winter prison, yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I've been saying person this entire time. It is, in fact, winter prison. Apparently, I cannot read. We learn something new every day, folks. Carry on. We sure do. I work in a Weeb Revolution, an anime communist YouTube channel, where we pretty much make similar videos to the stuff Mo puts out. Like, uh, most of us are MLs on, the, on that um, channel. But we pretty much make leftist anime content as we see fit, you know? It can be hard sometimes with anime because... It can be a little disappointing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, that's what we try to do, and... Anime is a niche medium dominated by capital because of its relatively high production cost. Yep. Yeah, and also, like, the weird child sexualization. That's the other... (laughs) That's always a big problem. (laughs) Maybe do a little less of that. (laughs) Just in general, yeah. Good tip. But yeah, um, super happy to have you on. Um, I I feel like we've done maybe less cross-collaboration things than you might have thought, but uh, it's okay. The year's still, still going. We'll have plenty of times to talk to each other. It's April. The year's still young. The year's still young. And there will be plenty of stuff to talk about. So welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here. We have quite a doozy to talk about today. (laughs) Yeah. We have so much to talk about. Um, Little known fact uh, that we haven't. So if you've watched 
more than one episode of this podcast, it is statistically likely that you have heard us talk about Akudama Drive. Um, and if you have heard us talk about Akudama Drive, a little known fact, a Soviet winter prison here was actually uh, the person who recommended it to us and a bunch of other people, as I understand it. And it's wonderful. And we're here to talk about shows like Akudama Drive and other cyberpunk socialist. If I can do like an uh, echo effect, I would, but I can't. So I'm just going to say it again. Cyberpunk, cyberpunk socialist, socialist. anime. I mean, we'll definitely like edit in an echo. We're not barbarians here. <laughs> I'm not going to edit in an echo. Yes. Today we are talking about a very special one. I shield very hard for this show to anyone who talked to me when it was airing. Like, episode two, I'm like, okay, everybody's got to watch this with me. And that's the story of how I ended up just shilling it to everyone. I think I, I binged, like, God, I binged, like, eight episodes in a night. I just, like, I, because after we watched the first few episodes together, I was like, I should probably, I should probably get some sleep. And I didn't get some sleep. I just watched the rest of the episodes. And I was like, Raghava, <laughs> Raghava, <laughs> listen. I was definitely looking into watching it at a point, but because it is made by Tokyo Games, and I know I recognize a lot of the people who are involved in that game studio that also makes anime now. I'm not complaining. Uh, specifically, Kotaro Uchikoishi, who made um, Nine Hours, Nine Persons, Nine Doors, and that entire series. So I recognize that name. So I was always thinking of checking it out, and then no one was talking about it. So I was like, oh, I guess it was a dud, huh? Um, and then it turned out to not have been a dud. People were just not talking about the best anime that season. Well, that season also had Moriarty. I'm really surprised how many people slept on the show. Because, like, even... We're gonna get into the leftism. Even if you want to ignore it, just, like, how, like, openly um, revolutionary the text is. Like, it's just really pretty. And it and the fights are so good. The animation is incredible. The fight scene between Brawler and Master is, like... One of the best fight scenes of the year. I just, I, I don't understand what else was going on in this season. Like, okay, Jujutsu Kaisen, I can understand. Like, Moriarty and Patriot even got even less attention. So, like, it's, it's not like Moriarty was stealing from Akudama Drive. And then, oh, God, we had the, 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 the one with the really annoying purple-haired goddess. It was bad. Yeah, the day I became God. Oh, I didn't even watch that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We had Adachi and Shimamura, but that was like a Yuri. So, like, by definition, a bunch of less people saw it. Like, I don't know. Over the Moon for you? <laughs> not, not many people even talked about that. Yeah. I, I guess maybe Haikyuu. There were just a lot of people complaining there weren't any good anime to watch last season. And they weren't even watching Akudama Drive and or Moriarty. So. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yes, in a lot of ways, Akuzama Drive is exactly the story that like 2020 needed to tell. It was a really good way to like end 2020. It it was very fitting to come out in 2020. Like, 
given all the events that happened, the Black Lives Matters protests, the police brutality that became more widely known to the public, mm-hmm. and these are all things that are directly addressed within Akudama Drive. It's incredibly strange how topical it is, because I imagine it takes a lot more time to make an anime. Yes, it does. This was in production, yeah, at least a year. At least a year. So the timing just happened to work out on this one. Yeah, we're, we're not, before people come in, and oh, usually, okay, the, the people who end up watching these are usually very nice and very understanding, but um, every once in a while, there's going to be some like, oh, so you think that, like, this Japanese show was specifically responding to... No, no, no. I'm not saying that Akadama Drive was made specifically as a response to Black Lives Matter. What we're saying is that it's nice that the two were released around the same time. I'm not even saying that it's nice that the two were released around the same time. Just that they both relate specifically to policing and criminality and you can use one as a vehicle to talk about the other. Mm-hmm. Very easily. It's, the comparisons are directly there. Anyways, let's, let's talk about the show. Let's, like, let's get into this. Yeah, let's dig into specifics. We've talked in general about what Akadama Drive is before. Yeah, we've definitely talked in general about Akadama Drive before, but one thing we haven't talked about as much is the people who have made Akutama Drive. And that, I think, can form a good background to understand how to analyze Akutama Drive specifically. And Soviet, I know this is why you started watching Akutama Drive in the first place. So if you want to start there and give us the history lesson before we dive into the show itself. Yes, so Akutama Drive was written... And I believe it's the same artist as the series Danganronpa, Kazutaka Kodaka, who was the main writer of the Danganronpa game series, which is a series of like three games and a spinoff that deal with students committing murder in order to escape a situation that they find themselves in. It's a very artistically ambitious game series in that it's like a very creative way to like explore like this like theme of like teenagers like having to like kill each other for various motivations each chapter there's a murder and a trial and then you go to the trial and you have to figure out who did it otherwise everybody dies except the murderer we'll get into the specifics of the danganronpa games in a bit but Kodaka was the main writer of the series, as well as Akudama Drive. And he explores themes like consumer culture overload and capitalism in very interesting ways. Yeah, I don't know if you want to like talk about V3 yet. And we can talk a little bit about how both of these two groups are framed. All right, keep going then. Yeah, it's very important that we talk about that. Um, anyways... When I found out that he was the lead writer for Akazama Drive, my interest in the show actually really began. And especially after watching like the first trailer, I'm like, this looks pretty cool. And then, you know, I started watching the show and I was immediately struck by like the introduction of all the characters in like the first episode. It was so efficiently told what each character was and like what they were all about in like one scene. With, like, each of them introducing themselves. And then, like in Danganronpa, the character panels pop out, and it's, like, their profile, and it shows, like, the stuff they do. And I'm like, love it. 
then it turns out the show is about a group of criminals with various talents fighting against the police. Explicitly. Yes. We talked about this in our episode with Amr on colonization, etc. And if you haven't seen that, you should. It's a great one. Yes. So as a refresher, Akudama Drive is a story about criminality, about who gets to decide who is a criminal or not, and um, what that means in a colonial context, among others. So the criminals, the, the worst of the worst in the show, they're called Akudama. It's a form of saying, like, the bad guy. Yeah. Well, so how the government works in, in this situation is the police department has, like, a special uh, group called um, the executioners, right? And when the police department declares someone an Akudama, which they do supposedly in uh, the name of public interest, um, then the executioners go and they arrest and then they kill them in these big uh, public executions with a guillotine. It's very fun. It's very extra. Yes, it's very extra, just like Duncan Rafa. <laughs> yeah, um, but what it becomes clear later on is that first of all, the police are not really a hundred percent in control of its like executioner arm. Like the executioners can definitely go to the police and say legally designate X Y Z in Akudama so that we can go kill them, <laughs> and this happens. It doesn't matter what they do or what they've done; they are they can just declare them an Akuzama. Right. Innocent people and anyone who um, rises up against the status quo. Like, just people who are, like, fed up with the current state of affairs and who end up protesting, they get declared Akudama and they get, you know, executed by the state. Yeah. And so it becomes pretty clear that, like, the state does not declare people criminals to protect innocent people from criminals. The state declares people criminals to, to maintain their control over society. And I think the critical thing Akudama Drive does that allows it to be effective in what it is trying to say is it depicts the rationalizations the state and other people in power use to justify their actions. It's very easy when you're writing a show that is critical of the state to paint it as purely irrational, which it is, but to not bother to explain why it considers itself rational in spite of that. And I feel like when you neglect that, you end up painting an inaccurate picture of, oh, well, they have justifications for their actions, which means they're probably right. You know, that's probably reasonable. But in Akudama Drive, the state has justifications for its actions every time, but Akudama Drive makes it clear that those justifications and rationalizations are still bullshit. Yes, there's even a big aspect of this, is the propaganda that the state produces. It's all produced um, by Kanto to, like, control the people of Kansai. It's very clearly this, like, rich ruling elite have, like, the power of the police force, the executioners, and, like, this entire propaganda wing to, like, pacify the population. Did we explain what's going on with uh, Kanto Kansai? We should explain that now. Okay. So, um, in a war, in a civil war that is not unlike World War II from Japan's perspective. Essentially, uh, Japan is split between East and West, between Kanto and Kansai. And um, Kanto, they develop a new and incredibly powerful bomb. Stronger than any other bomb. Okay, yeah, we, we, it's, it's an allegory for a nuclear bomb. Whatever. Um, but basically, they drop it in the middle of Japan and creates this 
huge vortex uh, called the absolute quarantine zone, which is also topical. But <laughs> regardless, um, in order to cross between uh, the west and the east, between Kansai and Kanto, um, you need to get on a big train. And I'm going to mispronounce it. It's like the, the Shingan? The Shinkansen. The Shinkansen. Thank you. It's a big sparkly train that goes between um, Kansai and Kanto. And it's the only thing that links the two parts of the country together. Um, and the way it's framed is that Kanto, after winning the war with that huge-ass motherfucking bomb, basically restructures Kansai uh, to be like a production base for Kanto. There's like this big factory in which everything that Kanto needs is made in Kansai. Soviet, there are some things I'm forgetting. You should... <laughs> You should keep me up. Yes, it's it's fine. Um, yeah, so Kanto, as it turns out, is basically a quantum supercomputer comprised of like the consciousnesses of the people of Kanto, the ruling bourgeois, like basically digitize themselves and um, are basically in a quantum supercomputer. But the one thing they don't have is like unlimited space. But, like, they can create, like, all kinds of, like, advanced, helpful technologies that they do not share with, like, the poor people of uh, Kansai. For example, Kanto has such advanced technology, they can create a device that can, like, basically create food out of thin air. Like, using stuff like this, they can just create easily create, like, a completely equal society. But they choose to keep it for themselves. And, like, keep collecting and accumulating wealth and capital, even though it's basically of no use to them. They just keep doing... It's the greatest abstraction of capitalism. Like, that's the point that they're at. And not only of, of capitalism, um, but um, of imperialism, you know. As we all know, the, the highest stage of capitalism. Yes, imperialism as well. But quite, quite literally, like, um, in the sense that, like, uh, uh, the entity that runs Kanto, um, like you said, we're, we're introduced to Kansai at the beginning as like this place that's like filled with like crime. It's filled with poverty. And like we're told that the only way, um, to control this is with, um, like a, like a big state that kills all the undesirables, that kills all the criminals. But like we're shown that like, well, no, all of this was like manufactured by the people in charge to benefit them and themselves only. And the actual way to fix it is to, like, end the uh, unequal balance of power and wealth between Kanto and Kansai. Exactly. End the whole system. Overthrow it. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not subtle. The show is very clear about that message, too. And to be honest, subtlety is not really something that I'm, I'm valuing in stories right now. Yeah, it's not subtle at all. But that's a good thing. Yeah, I would rather a story just, like, read passages from fucking capital and then have writing problems that we need to address than like try and be subtle and then end up not really saying anything no i think it's better if stories are as clear as possible <laughs> for me it is important more than anything that a show's message is coherent so if it says uh for example we're going to be about criminals or we're going to be about revolution the aspects of said show are about what they say they are. Um, Akudama Drive is a great example of a show that says it's going to be about criminals and revolution and then is about criminals and revolution. Whereas um, something like uh, Death Note says it's going to be about criminals and then is 
terrible at being about criminals. Its its metaphors get all like muddled. It doesn't work at all. And Code Geass says it's going to be about revolution, and that it has no idea how to talk about revolution. Right. We'll do we'll do our big Code Geass thing. Maybe it'll be live. I don't know. We haven't talked about it. It'll really depend. I don't know how much of R2 we need to watch, but we definitely need to watch at least the first two episodes and the last two episodes, I think. Okay. Because the ending of R2 is just total bullshit. Holy shit. <laughs> okay. Anywho, we'll, uh, we'll pivot back to Akadama Drive yeah. for the time being. Right, right. Okay. There's a clear um, reference to not just capitalism, but also imperialism, like in their relationship, especially with the whole bomb dropping reference. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about the propaganda of Rabbit and Shark, which is probably let's talk about yeah let's okay let, let's them let's let's dig into it a little bit more because this was it, this was like the coolest part of the show for me for like a really long time at least before like the brawler fight, which is also cool, and then. <laughs> I don't know. Episode eleven, it looked pretty. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know what's going on there, but it was pretty. <laughs> yes, it was very pretty consistently. And then episode twelve was just. Oh yeah, episode twelve really tied it together. It it really it really tied the whole message together. Mm-hmm. One of the best f- finale episodes of any twelve episode anime, easily. But um, so Bunny and Shark, um, occasionally interspersed within akudama drive the show will give you um an intermission with bunny and shark yeah an intermission it's presented as like a government educational program for kids yes in which for um for the audience you're supposed to learn a little bit about this world it's kind of like a it's very a lot of it is kind of like functional dialogue of like okay here's what's going on so you don't get confused but the framing is really interesting because in universe, these these things do they do exist, and they they do deliver propaganda. They do exist. <laughs> I, I I put an asterisk on this because it's a little bit meta <laughs> at times, so it is hard to understand if how much of it is real. But it they are it is real enough to say that this is that like government propaganda, like what you see in the show, is constantly being beamed into the minds of like all of the characters in the show at all times. Yes. They and they are aware of like all the stuff Bunny and Shark are talking about and they know who they are. They're like, "Oh yeah, this Bunny and Shark." Like Swindler says that specifically. Mm-hmm. So like it is recognized by the characters in the world of Akazama Drive. Yeah. And so the reason why um I say it was like one of the coolest things because like the way that um Kanto for example is framed as like essentially benevolent dictators that um, liberated and enlightened the poor Kansai region and also um, the way to describe um, the criminals and and the Akudama as um, people who are just inherently evil and who the state needs to be able to kill in in order to assure safety. Yeah. Basically, if Kansai ever wants to be like Kanto, we just need to kill enough people. Lots of really good scenes like that. It's also critically relevant to know that in its framing of Kanto and Kansai, Akudama Drive isn't taking a position of like, oh yeah, Kansai is just so much better than Kanto, we should just go back to what Kansai was doing. Because it's important to note that the tool, the reactionary arm of the state, the enforcers, are coded using nationalistic imagery. Very nationalistic. Right, with like, they have cherry blossoms. 
they have like these grand statues of of like figures and stuff. oh yeah their uniforms i believe are specifically designed to look like you know imperial era uniforms so the show isn't simply like doing what other shows do when they like use an analog to talk about the american occupation of japan in waxing nostalgic about you know fascist japan it is pointing out how like that reactionary tendency is in line with the occupation yep yes and that kanto considers it necessary for them to be like this and to do this just controlling this reactionary arm of the state that like suppresses like anyone who goes outside of it like it does nothing to protect the citizens it is just there to enforce the transfer of wealth from kansai to kanto yeah yep 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 yep. um should we talk about swindler and uh jesus (laughs) yes we should I also want to talk about Courier and Hoodlum a bit, too. Oh, yeah, true. And I want to talk about Brawler. Brawler is a big boy. Oh, we got to talk about Brawler and Hoodlum. Brawler and Hoodlum and how I ship them. <laughs> they are the OTV of Kakudama Drive. And then we should talk about how Akudama Drive treats abusers as well. There's a lot to talk about. I want to talk about Brawler first because I feel like he's the simplest one to really handle and get a grip on specifically uh the one main thing i have to say about brawler is his motivation is i am an akudama for fun and in worse shows like boku no hero academia being defying the rules of the state for fun is portrayed as a bad thing but brawler in akudama drive is portrayed in an incredibly simple sympathetic light being a criminal for fun yeah even though he like breaks the rules or something he doesn't cause much harm if at all barely he like beats up robots from the police force and like he like fight he like wrestles with other people and fights cops like that's all he does yeah i'm actually not sure if we've ever seen brawler if we've ever if it's ever been argued that he's like ever a threat to like other people he's a threat to the police and he likes beating and he likes destroying property and he likes getting into fights but like we never see him like sadistically kill anyone (laughs) unlike some of the other akudama who do and that's very important because that puts him in direct opposition to the doctor who does sadistically kill people who does manipulate people but she's not a threat to the state she follows the rules so she gets to no longer be an Akudama. Because she acquiesced to the state's demands and she'll do what they want even though she's causing abuse and harm to other people. Whereas Brawler is considered a threat even though he's never directly shown like harming other people other than like he wants to fight the other Akudama. Like that's what he wants to do because he's like they must be tough. Exactly. But he doesn't want to like kill them. He just wants to like have a playful scrap. And, like, that's, I think, like, a very important thing that Akutama Drive does, in which it says, like, you know, wanting to, like, roughhouse or, like, play with the rules a bit for fun is, like, not a bad thing. Like, just don't be a danger to other people, bro. It's fine. And, but also, even if 
you are harmless. And even if you just break the rules for fun, if you are a threat to the state, you get labeled as a criminal, even if you didn't do anything really harmful. And even if you did plenty of things harmful, if you're not a threat to the state, if you're collaborating with them, and we see this plenty of times in real life, for example, if we look at all of like the fascists who got incorporated into the CIA, or just as one example, or all of the white supremacists and the police, if you collaborate with the state, even if you're a danger to others, you're not considered a threat. Right. I also want to talk about his relationship with Hoodlum, because the God, oh my, oh, oh my God, they're so pure, <laughs> they're so good. <laughs> we should start by talking about Hoodlum first. Okay, yeah, that's true, that's true. Yes, Hoodlum is con- also considered, a, he's considered a low-rank Akudama, because he's not as big of a threat considered by the state, because he just, like, extorts money and, like, does, like, petty crimes, so this actually ties into the whole year thing when they're introduced. Each Akudama is given a, a certain amount of years for their sentence that is absurdly long. Like, they have, like, seven, like, hundred years or whatever to serve. But Hoodlum only has to serve for four. Like, he's just, like, a minor criminal. Kind of like our protagonist, Swindler, he gets um, ropes into the events that basically kick off the story uh, by accident and out of a fear of dying. <laughs> he is another, like Swindler, he is another character who's just kind of wrapped up in this and is just trying to get through it. Mm-hmm. Like, that is his main motivation at first. But he, th- he thinks, he's like, hey, this guy is tough. Like, maybe if I hang out with him, like, I won't die. So he starts talking himself up to Brawler. And this is the start of their relationship. As Brawler thinks, he's like, wow, that's so cool, man. Like, you, you did that? Like he, like, he brags about, like, having, like, a million-year sentence. And he's like, wow, you must be pretty cool. Like, yo. And he, like, gives him, like, a pat on the back. And he's like, hey, man, like, that's cool. I, I think it's important to note that, like, Hulum's lies are, like, really bad. Um, and it's all, they're, they're supremely bad. And nobody believes them. Except for Brawler, because he is... He is the best himbo. <laughs> I would offer a specific counterpoint. Um, I think the show sort of hints, especially in episode 10, uh, when Doctor dies, uh, this is complicated, that Brawler was also not fooled. But specifically, it didn't matter. Because in episode 10, Hoodlum's like, you know, ah, he saw nothing in me. I was just lying to him the entire time. And so there's like, no, he still considered you a friend. And so for me, the way I have, I read that after having thought about it for a while is that, um, Brawler's not an idiot. Like, he's just a, a cinnamon roll. And when this guy is trying to act tough and act cool, Brawler's like, yeah, hell yeah, more power to you. Also, the part in episode six where he carries Hoodlum and he like tosses him, like he's like, "Yeah, bro, let's do this." But he's like, "I'll lead the way." He's like, "You, you just follow me." Yeah, he recognizes it, I think, but that's not really the point. That's not what's important. He, well, he sees the, anyway. like what Hoodlum could accomplish, like if he like put his mind to it, and instead of like making up these ridiculous lies to like show how cool you are, like to actually do something cool and be a cool person which is what he ends up doing in episode 10 when he doesn't hurt swindler and he kills doctor 
costing his own life as well because she like gets him too but he had a very like comparatively like to her who gets like trampled by the people by the citizens of kansai she literally gets killed by the people so i guess we're we should do how akidama drag treats abusers so okay now i want to finish the the brawler hoodlums okay okay so then their their relationship right right yeah So, so like brawler and like brings out like the best in hoodlum and after he loses brawler hoodlum is totally lost but he still thinks of like what brawler's words and like they inspire him after he gets taken advantage of by doctor they they're what inspires hoodlum to be a better person and like do the right thing so doctor in case we're not clear is um, like we said before, she's like another Akadama. She um, works for the state, as you said. Um, she's she's the traitor in the group. Yeah, she's the traitor in the group. At which point she stops being an Akadama. Yeah. Yes. Essentially what happens uh, is the first part of the story, um, they get sent on a MacGuffin chase to find a... A heist. Yeah, a heist. <laughs> and to um, they board the... The Shinkansen. 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 Thank you. <laughs> they board the Shinkansen. Shinkansen. Say it. Listen. Shinkansen. Good job. Shinkansen. Good job. Good job. So they board the Shinkansen. They take the package that was supposed to be going um, to Kanto. Um, they bring it back, and it turns out um, it's two immortal kids. It's, uh, the specifics are not important, right? Um, but basically, a doctor sells them out to the state. They're, they, they're shipping kids out here. Okay. <laughs> so the kids are also batteries. Um, it, <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> it's a lot for 12 episodes. It really is. It is. Um, One of the things that allows Kodama Drive to work really well is it's not subtlety. Um, because I agree that subtlety is a very, but it's willingness to abstract things. Mm-hmm. Akudama Drive would work a lot less, a, a lot worse, if it was just what you see is what you get. Right. Exactly. Even if it's very obvious what Akudama Drive is doing, it's, it has like layers, it has this fant- fantastical aesthetic, which allows the story to have a level of cohesion and allows it to avoid diving into the nitty gritty details where it can avoid diving into the nitty-gritty details. Um, I mean, it's it's certainly not as, like, abstract as, say, like, Penguin Drum or something like that. But it's... Okay. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but it's at least more... It's at least more abstract. It's more abstract than something like, like Code Geass, um, to its benefit. It's like a fantastical cyberpunk story. Right. Like, because, like, the people have, like extraordinary abilities that like you don't you can't fool you like oh he just like jumps down from like a building and he's fine like you know it's but it's like the universe it's in is like fantastical so like you're like yeah mm-hmm. they can do that like that makes sense in this story like there can be a man who rides a motorcycle that shoots out grappling hooks that like rides across buildings it's like yeah right i'd like to finish my point on doctor and then we can continue but um basically what i was saying after they ship the kids, uh, she sells them out. Because she sells them out and because she's working this day, she's no longer not Kodama. Th- there's a period in the middle um, where she's, sh- she's like working at a research lab for the state. 
and she's trying to unlock the secret of immortality uh, because she wants to control the lives of others. This was this was I, I think one of the weaker parts of the show, um, but it, it still works in a, in a couple of different ways that I'm gonna get into. But she's like she's like actively killing people, and we're told they can't do anything because she's been pardoned for being an Akudama. And like my first response, and like my response on Twitter was like, wait. Even if you're pardoned for a crime, if you commit more crimes, then you just get arrested again, right? <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's like, it's not, it's less like a logical thing and more like a thematic thing. Like, she's not an Akadama drive. I mean, it can also be a logical thing of the police refuse to persecute her. Yeah, that too. Um, but, but even then, I, I think, I, I think if it wanted to be a logical thing, it should have just said, like, we don't want to arrest you because you're useful to us. I don't know. That's just my personal thing. Because, like, she's, like, killing other researchers in the facility, right? Like, that that seems like... Okay, whatever. Um, that's that's not really my point. It seems like she's more valued to them, like, because of her, her talents and abilities. I suppose. Whereas those are just random, ordinary people. I mean, they're random, ordinary, like, staff that, like, run machines and do experiments to the state they're pretty much superfluous to them like they can just be replaced like that's how it treats the citizens I suppose so she is a very talented doctor um the reason why i want to bring up doctor is because her her death uh is super gross um she she gets pretty she gets like visibly stamped uh stamped on uh i think stabbed in the neck by her own instrument or was it? Yeah. yeah. She, no, she was trying to patch her neck wound up, and it yeah. got knocked out of her hands. Yeah. So she could not. She, she got. She got stomped by the people. Right. And um, the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because, like, there there are a couple of like abusive fucks in Akadama Drive, and they all die really painful deaths. There are. Yes. I would argue there are th- three. I will add a follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. Not only do they die painful deaths, they are all killed by their survivors. Yes, they're all killed by the people who tried to abuse them. And this is important in that it's not, especially uh, for a swindler who is a woman who is abused by a man, she is not... She is abused by several men, actually. Yeah. Several men, yes. Um, I was thinking about Cuthbert in specific, but mm-hmm. right. Um... No, even, yeah, but even with the other ones, it's not, she doesn't need a white knight to do revenge for her. She does revenge for herself, and it's awesome. More manga and anime need to let people kill their abusers. Yes, they do. It's like, it's about her. But just more specifically, if people are abused, the story should be about the the victim. And not the perpetrator. It should center the survivor. I'm really mad at a certain. At, okay, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to bring up. I don't want to bring up travelers because that's the whole thing. Like, if you have someone in a story that's being abused, and the story isn't about it's it's not about the victim, then it's just not good. Like, it, and that's what happens in travelers. Someone is someone is fucking attacked, and it's not about the person who was attacked. So you can't argue that it's good. I, I just, I don't, this is such an easy, it's such a simple concept. And we, 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 we're still in fucking 2021. We're still out here trying to tell people. <laughs> it's really frustrating. 
I also want to add a very specific caveat of I am not advocating for murder as the one and only solution in real life. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely a lot more complicated than that. It's definitely a lot more complicated than we have time to get into in this episode. In fact, it would be, you know, anime and the way we talk about abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole episode. It's a whole like two hour episode, at least. That's a whole conversation. But what I do want to say is that the visceral urge to inflict violence upon your perpetrator is valid and it's justified. And that's what I mean when I say it's great when they kill their abusers who like their unrepentant abusers because yeah, they deserve to be angry and they deserve to get revenge and they shouldn't be shamed for having like negative feelings towards those people. Right. And that's what we see a lot, but it is like the survivors, right. To decide how to feel about their perpetrator at the end of the day. And I find that also ties into how Swindler and Hoodlum are both portrayed as like the weaker party, like with less agency and capability to respond. But they are the ones who resolve the conflict. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. the ones who like have who, even though they're in a position of like lower power, you know, like yeah. Hoodlum and Swindler are basically normal people, whereas like Cutthroat and Doctor are like basically super like powerful like super soldiers basically like they have like super ability like doctor can like heal from anything but and like cutthroat can like kill anyone basically and they're like taken down or the people that they abuse like it's very satisfying yeah um, I, do, I do realize there are a lot of stories I, I wrote about um, the Frozen Bonds movie from ReZero, I think it's called. And and I, I kind of wrote about how, because there are people in that movie who like want to hurt uh, Amelia. And I talked about how it's like, it, because, it, okay, not not to like, okay, for, just, just for this once, I'm not singling out ReZero. Normally I do. <laughs> just for this once, I'm not. Um, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot of shows that like, put like a weird sort of like emphasis or um or value to people who are hurt and then forgive the people who hurt them as if like that makes you a better person than people who who don't and it's like no it doesn't anyway (laughs) i will add uh, a a small uh, addendum of if someone hurt you it isn't and they do not make up for it it is in fact a good thing if you make it clear that they hurt you and you do not forgive them so that other people are able to be safe from that person. Yes, exactly. Like you are able to like <sighs> I hate to bring this up but like rent a girlfriend in that show. That's the show. <laughs> yes, yes. That's the show. <laughs> In yes, I yeah I know what you're about to say. <laughs> mommy, or, yeah, mommy makes it very clear like what kind of a person. Um, Kazia. These people's names. Kazia. Uh, Kaz- Kazia, <laughs> the business major. The fucking business major. The fact that he's a business major just makes everything so much worse. Anyways, um, like she, like mommy describes like this. Per- he did all this like he was like very uncomfortable. I didn't like. 
I feel very unsafe with him. You know, I didn't like, like, I like I'm warning you, right? Yeah, she gives a warning, right? And like, over the course of the story, it's like she's like, eh, maybe he isn't that bad, or like all these other girls like him and all that. Oh, it's. You want to go on with, with this, Rex? Yeah, I think no, you might have go a point. It. Go for it. Okay. No. All right. Perfect. So. Yeah, like in the way that like it shifts like from it tries to like twist it around and make mommy the villain. Yeah. When she is like trying to like warn this other girl who's like she thinks is dating him that like yeah, you know, like look out for these behaviors. Like they're very not yeah. cool. Like but the show twists it around and makes it so that Chizuru has to stand up for him and is like, No, he's actually cool. And it's it's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. <laughs> Which is hilarious because he stalks her later. <laughs> Imagine defending someone who stalks you later. <laughs> this is all to say that Akudama Drive has a way better understanding of abuse and just about everything than, like, any other show. Like, just because it is an action show it still understands abuse very well, and it understands how people respond to abuse very well. It's great. And it, exa- exactly. For example, in this story, they could have easily had it so that Courier killed Cutthroat and Doctor, and not Swindler and Hoodlum. Like, that could have been how the story was written, but it's not. Yep. Um, I, I just wanted to point out real quick that it's also okay um, if someone hurts you for you to say um, there is nothing that you could do for me specifically to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And if you are in a position where you have hurt someone and they do not forgive you, you should try to make up for it, but you are not owed their forgiveness and you have to live with that. I mean, you should try to make up for it. Yeah, you're not owed forgiveness. Yeah, you can. It's it's definitely possible that you hurt someone, and for the rest of your life, that person specifically will say like, "It doesn't matter what you do, I still hate you." And you know, it sucks. You know, <laughs> but like, okay, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about that. You can't change it. It's not that person's fault. Yeah. Also, for example, in Akuzama Drive, when Cutthroat takes advantage of the kids and uses them as a human shield and hurts brother. Swindler is very firm about like him doing something really terrible, and she slaps him right across the face. And he even looks shocked that she did that, and she's like standing up to him for the first time. Yeah, up up until that point, he's been like he's had like like a pretty creepy crush. Yeah, she's he's like licked blood off of her. He's like touched her, and like he's like he gets uncomfortably close with her and stuff. And she's kind of went along with it because she doesn't want to actually die she's the only like wow have we not even said okay so like swindler's crime is that she accidentally stole a five yen coin five no 500 yen 500 yen coin no no this is no her crime was that she didn't have cash and she didn't realize that the place she was buying food from was cash only yeah that that was the actual actual crime. crime she and and she was like, oh, I'll just go to my bank account and, like, withdraw money in BRB. And they called the cops instead. <laughs> it's, like, not even five bucks. 
This happens in the first five minutes of the show, by the way. It's very fast-paced. She literally, like, rescues a cat, and then she, like, it's like... You know, as you do. She almost, like, causes a car accident. Everybody's like, what are you doing? And then she's like, you know what? I'm hungry. I'm gonna go get some takoyaki. She runs into this, like, mysterious biker guy named Courier, who drops a coin, a specific 500 yen coin that she picks up, that she tries to give back to him, being just, like, a concerned, like, person. But he turns it down, says it's bad luck, and then she refuses to use that money that she just picked up, because she's like, oh, it's his money, like, I need to give it back to him. Then she gets arrested, because she doesn't have enough money. First five minutes of the show, just, like, just opens with this. Right, so she's, like, going along with what um, Cutthroat is basically doing to her, because... As the only non-hardened criminal. Well, okay, her and Hoodlum, like we said, are like the two least hardened criminals. But like, she's kind of just like a civilian, right? She doesn't have any powers. She doesn't have any kung fu. Um, she can't stitch herself back together. So she's basically like in survival mode for the entire story. She's a normal person thrown into like this like fantastical like cyberpunk story. Right. So basically, up until then, um, she's more or less just like okay, there's this creepy guy, he's, like, the least of my concerns. But, like, when there comes a point where she basically decides that she's no longer willing to tolerate it. And it starts with the slap in the face, and it continues all the way up until, like, this really great, like, sort of horror sequence. The Shining, yeah, The Shining. That's the name of the episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a, yeah, it's 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 literally a Shining reference. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then basically she she basically tricks Cutthroat and d- kills him brutally and it's super awesome. <laughs> it's fucking sick. Yes. Uh, I actually want to like take a brief moment to like talk about that scene in The Shining. Mm-hmm. that Akudama Drive is referencing. I don't... Has anyone, like, seen The Shining here? I have. I have not. Okay. So, in that scene, correct me if I'm wrong, but she does not fight back in that scene. I believe she runs away. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the point. That's the... <laughs> that's That was the entire... That's, that's the entire thing I wanted to say of, like, Akudama Drive is, isn't just like taking elements from the Shining. It is referencing a scene in which a creepy man breaks into a, uh, a woman's space. A woman's space and then forces her to flee and juxtaposing that with a scene, following that up with a scene which in Akudama Drive, said woman fights back and kills her abuser. I don't think that happens in the Shining. No, it does not. Yeah. Yeah. It goes where Swindler, unlike in the shot, fights back by literally pushing the door, like, away, trapping him. Yeah, right. So that he's the one in a, like, disadvantaged, like, position. Right. And she can, like, get past him, and she, like, that's when she's able to get weapons and, like, figure out a plan to defeat him. Mm Mm-hmm. And, again, I want to, like, point that out of, like, that's... A lot of people have criticized Akudama Drive for being derivatives. They look at the fact that Akudama Drive in its episode titles just references a bunch of movies and go, oh, it's just ripping off those movies. But Akudama Drive doesn't just copy that scene from The Shining to copy the scene from The Shining. It copies that scene from The Shining with purpose and to contrast it. 
Yes. To what it's actually doing. To what it's actually the story is actually telling, which is like, yes, it is referencing that thing, but it's telling a different story with the same elements. We may. I think the segment's like an hour, so we may want to have last couple of. Okay. Do you want me to talk about the Duncan Rampa V3 stuff? Yes. This would be the time to do it. Okay. As I described earlier, Danganronpa is a murder mystery series um, in which you solve mysteries about murder and you go to trial to figure out who did it. And I also forgot to mention, that I'll bring up now, that the game's main mascot character, Monokuma, is the judge of all these trials. And once the trials are like uh, completed, he judges the guilty party. And like in Akutama Drive with the executioners... In this exact wording, he executes the perpetrator via a very over-the-top execution, like, stylized, like, execution scene. Like, he is enforcing, like, the state power of Danganronpa upon, like, these people, like, these teenagers. And Danganronpa, as well, is a series that, like, references, like, a whole bunch of other things constantly, which leads to... Danganronpa V3, which is where I think the series, like, really, like, I was like, wow, this is something really great. V3 is definitely the best and most anti-capitalist Danganronpa. I think a direct contrast to the Danganronpa 3 animes, which... Oh, let's not talk about those. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those yeah. don't exist, actually, because of V3. Those retroactively don't even, aren't even, like, a thing. <laughs> the Danganronpa animes were definitely not made out of, like, a creative project. They were definitely made no. because Danganronpa was profitable. And V3 is a direct commentary on that. Let's talk about V3. So V3. Okay. So first of all, I want to say that this takes place at the Academy for Gifted Inmates to begin with, which is mm-hmm. really interesting because it's like, oh, like these kids all have, they're all like inmates because like of a vague like you don't it's not explained at first you're just like they're just all it's stuck in this prison um and you know the same you know stuff happens like there's a lot of cool characters a lot of great moments but (laughs) at the very end of the game you are not in Danganronpa 3 you are in fact in Danganronpa 53 V is a Roman numeral! <laughs> oh. In true Danganronpa fashion, it's, like, completely ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous, but that shot where it goes to, like, the 53, and then it goes, like, through the list of the Danganronpas, and it references, like, all every movie series, like, ever. It's, like, Star Wars. It's, like, Final Fantasy. It's, like, Friday the 13th with the title names, if you, like, pause it. Like, it's all these franchises that it just went on and on and on forever, right? And it's just, like... Like, as is explained in the game, it's like, yeah, yeah, there's just, like, various gimmicks and stuff that we used, and people are still here, and the characters themselves are like, what? This is insane. Like, what do you mean this is the 53rd season? And it also turns out that the people in the real world, like, real people, like, there's, like, superimposed, and there's, like, forum posts being showed about, like, the game. Like, yeah, like, what is this? Like, how can this game be this meta? Like... What's going on? 
And, like, you find out, like, via the audition tapes, that all the characters you've been playing at were actually jaded, cynical teenagers who, like, have no faith. They're misanthropes. They have no faith in humanity, and they're like, but they are obsessed with Danganronpa. So they themselves write up character ideas to be Danganronpa characters. And then they get brainwashed to become those characters. That they created. Yeah. So they used to be these cynical jaded teens who came up with these Danganronpa character ideas, but they got brainwashed, and now they believe they are the Danganronpa characters. Like... (laughs) But the specific... The specific relevant thing and what what brings us back to V3, right, is the Danganronpa V3's assertion that they keep making Danganronpa, even though it's creatively bankrupt, because it's profitable. Because it's profitable. They're just relying on gimmicks because it makes money. Monokuma specifically mentions the profit, and like he's constantly talking about the audience entertainment throughout the whole thing. Where it's like, wouldn't that be like a crazy twist if this happened? And like mm-hmm. he's constantly trying to be the showman. Literally at the end of the game, he's getting you to keep playing it by trying to sell you merchandise, Danganronpa merchandise. He's like, don't forget to visit our web, and like he's literally blocking out your arguments with like blatant like consumer, like, oh yeah, buy this game or check out the website. It's like we've been doing this for fifty three seasons. Like, like it, it, he he is so perfectly portrayed as like this like horrible capitalist like exploiter. Like, there's even some like fascist symbolism to him at certain points in the game. It's important to understand that Danganronpa V3 is both in-game and metatextually a commentary on the commodification of Danganronpa. Yes, and creative properties in general. It is a story that is about, like, uh, we talked about the Danganronpa 3 anime, which are creatively bankrupt, that were just made because it's Danganronpa yes. and Danganronpa sells. Because it's profitable. Yeah, Danganronpa sells. The V3 is a direct reflection on that in a meta-commentary. The whole like slew of movies that play when they go through all of the past Danganronpa games in there isn't just, oh, we're referencing it to be cute. It's they started ripping off ideas because they had no original ideas of their own, and they're only making this because people keep buying it. That's the only reason they're making a show in which people literally die. Their friends and, like, loved ones die. Like, people they are in love with have died as a result of this. And they're selling this, like, as a game, mm-hmm. as entertainment. Mm-hmm. And, like, the characters, when they realize this... what This is the other part that really sells it. Is the characters' response. <laughs> Commentary on capitalism. <laughs> like... The main character is literally like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, this is like what you, our friends, the girl I loved literally died as a result of this like stupid show. And all you have to tell me is like, yeah, we're going to sell you hope or you can just like give in to despair. Like you have, but like, he's like, but if I choose, ho- if we choose hope, doesn't that mean this game will just continue on? Like, won't there just be a Danganronpa 54? And they're like, yeah, there will be. And he literally is like, guys, everybody, 
Let's ruin the ending of this game. None of us participate. We don't play by this game. We go our own... We have our own path forward. Even if this costs us all our lives, we have to stop Danganronpa itself. That is the true enemy. Um, and that's a great segue into Swindler Jesus. But before we get into that, I want to like really quick talk about the more and more I think about it, the more and more convinced I become that Danganronpa really gets a bad rap. It's not just edgy bullshit. It is edgy bullshit, but it's not just edgy bullshit. I think specifically the themes of Danganronpa, if you look at it, it's not just saying that given the opportunity, kids will kill each other. Um, if you play through any of the game, you note that every time after a trial, there is always a long period in which they don't kill each other. They have to be they have to be motivated by incentives that Monokuma provides, that the host provides. Like they do not like they aren't just like oh I'm just gonna kill this person and like get out of here. Like they have motivations for each of these murders. In Danganronpa two. Uh, the one I always think of is they were all starving. Monokuma has to make them starve to death in order for them to reach the point at which they are willing to kill each other. It is not just, it is not saying killing is bad. It's not that naive. Nor is it saying that people, if put in a situation, will naturally start killing each other. The point it's making with its hope despair bullshit is that kids people killing each other has to be coerced by, and here's the word, capital. That's that's what Danganronpa is about, and I just wanted to say that my, my opinion of the series has improved a lot since becoming a leftist. Like, it can't, I played that game at the perfect time in my, like, political development, where I'm like, I get this. I'm like, this, it all adds up. The Swindler Jesus. So we wanted to talk about Swindler Jesus. Uh, I remember, I remember we watched, I think, the, the finale of the show, either on Christmas or around Christmas. We did. Right. We did watch it. Mm-hmm. We watched it together. Uh, yes. and it was, All it was very hype. It was very good. Um, we. Very hype. <laughs> uh, it basically, um, the executioners are, uh, closing in on all the Akudama. Actually, most of the Akudama have, like, died at this point. It's just Swindler and Courier. Yeah. Um, they're like closing in on Swindler and Courier because they're still trying to reunite the two um, separated immortal children who are also batteries. Um, <laughs> then there are riots in the streets because um, people are like, they were like ginned up into a frenzy about crime. That is the point at which the execution order to declare the Malakidama has already been carried out. Yeah. So. The people have already been slaughtered by the police, and they're all just, like, very confused, very agitated. Um, it's a very politically volatile situation, and the executioners are, like, desperately trying to keep a hold. Yeah, they want to wrap up this whole Akudama thing, and they gotta kill the rest of the Akudama and get the kids back, and, like, cover this whole thing up. And, to be honest, to some extent, I, I sort of... Weird, because, like, I am an anarchist, but, like, I sort of... <laughs> I, I sort of felt a little bit. I thought it was unfortunate how a lot of these people, they, they put so much of their time into oppressing people, thinking that it would solve anything. And, and, and just seeing people like, like work so desperately hard to like achieve something that like can't come through the method that they're trying to advocate was, it was a pretty interesting feeling. But anyway, um, 
Swindler dies. This is a spoiler episode. We put a spoiler thing at the beginning. She gets executed. She gets impaled on a stone cross. Yeah. She gets executed by the executioners. On a cross. (laughs) On a cross. On a bloody cross. Yeah. And it's one of the few, because I've seen like Jesus metaphors and like seen him in Ava, um, seen him in ReZero. I've seen him in lots of different anime. But, like, this is one of the ones that, like, yeah, in lots of different movies. I've seen them in Batman v Superman. Man of Steel, all of those. (laughs) Man of Steel. Yeah, and they're... uh, Akudama Drive knows how to use a fucking Jesus metaphor, okay? Because she dies. She she was, like, the most innocent of all of the Akudama. She literally commits revolutionary suicide. Yeah, she, she bears the sins of pretty much the entire working class of this show. So that the rest of the working class can finally realize that the executioners do not exist to protect them. And they finally, instead of um, revolting against the criminals, they revolt against um, the state itself. And there's a whole thing where, like, the police tower, like, falls over and smashes. It gets blown to bits. It gets blown up. The yeah. Cops get hit with bricks in the face. Like civilians start shooting cops, and like the executioners can't even fight back. Like a full-on revolution happens. Literally, an entire when that started, you guys were like, "There's no way this is really happening." I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, as soon yeah. as the Molotovs start flying, it's like it's this is how it ends. Right, it's a good one. And it really taught, wrapped the whole story together, mm-hmm. and like had that clear message to say. Up until that point. I was I was really worried that Akudama Drive wouldn't stick the landing because like the only like collective action that we saw was like people wanting more police involvement because they were afraid of the Akudama and I was like is the show is it gonna you know but like as soon as that happened I was like oh yeah that <laughs> you know the meme oh yeah it's all coming together <laughs> that was me <laughs> when we first saw that scene it was definitely like. I'm not sure about this, but I trust Akudama Drive. And then it turns out it was right to trust it because the specific point that it's making is even if you are nominally acting in the interest of the state, the state is not your friend. Yeah. Like, even if you do everything right, even if you're a fucking bootlicker, it's not your friend. Yeah, the state will still just execute you if you get if you get a little uppity, if you get out of hand. It's very similar to the uh, January 6th uprising. Yeah. All the people who thought that um, Trump was on their side and the cops were on, like the people, the white people screaming, I love these videos, people screaming, like you're treating me like a black person. They're not arresting BLM, they're arresting us. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's not to say that those actions are, like the actions of the January 6th protesters are justified. But it is to make a very specific... Oh, are not justified. No, they're not. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, fuck fascists. About reactionaries also being under the arm of the bourgeois government. Working class reactionaries. Or even more specifically, it's like, you can't kiss up to the state out of this problem. Because even if you kiss up to the state, even if you're a fucking bootlicker, even if you do everything right, even if you're like, yay, neoliberal capitalism all the way, you're still fucked. Mm-hmm. You're still fucked, so there's no good reason to do that. There's no good reason to turn against other people. There's no good reason to, like, you know, go against the interests of the working class, because at the end of the day, you're fucked. Yeah, exactly. And that's what Akadama Drive shows 
within its story. Great show. I think that's a we're all fucked, but Akudama Drive is a good show. Is a great place to end it. <laughs> we're all fucked, but together we can unfuck ourselves. Agreed. And Akudama Drive shows us with collective action, the ordinary people can enact revolutionary change. Revolutionary unfuckery. Yeah, join an organization, uh, support mutual aid, unionize your workplace. All the wonderful things that you can do. Yes, you, listener at home. Greetings, citizen. Ordinary citizen. <laughs> Soviet, uh, would you, do you have any projects you'd like to plug? I think I'm going to be finishing up on my uh, other Akizama Drive essay that I've been working on for a bit. Uh, it should hopefully be out by the time this episode's out. Okay. With that being said, uh, this has been Mo Black. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, this is Ragnar. My pronouns are anything other than he or she. I am Soviet Winter Prison. My pronouns are he, him, or they, them. Great. It was wonderful seeing all of your wonderful faces, by which I mean I can see none of your faces, but I'm going to pretend I can. You don't know that. <laughs> you don't know I not. You don't know I don't see you. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> See y'all. The following segment of Critical Weave Theory will contain some heavy spoilers for um, the saga of Tanya the Evil. Uh, make sure to check out our guest, um, Titania, and her podcast, uh, The Menacing Podcast. Enjoy! Hello! I've been told that I'm using a stage voice when I do these things, and you know what? I'm going to start embracing. Hello, how are you? Hi, um, this is another guest segment of Critical Weep Theory, and this time we have on Titan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Titan slash Titania. Uh, you can use any pronouns on me. <laughs> I mostly prefer female pronouns, but like I said, any pronouns are fine. I have a podcast, a medicine podcast channel, and I'll also be making more serious videos than the ones I've been making. Oh, and fair warning, the podcasts are fairly uh, fairly high tri- uh, content warnings. Please read the content warnings. You, you just, you talk about the most garbage. You did like a jobless episode and like a redo of Healer episode, correct? No, only redo of a Healer. <laughs> My co-host, Alex the Magnificent, insists that we talk about redo of a Healer Almost every podcast, uh, but we di- we did talk about the themes uh, fantasy racism in D and D and how it's kind of weird that intelligence and charisma can be stats. Yeah, that's a little that's a little um, suspicious, <laughs> if you ask me. And actually, I have been asked because um, I mentioned it in the second part of Bullshit Notion with relation to Konosuba and how that works. Okay. Um, so today with Titan, we're talking about anime and the liberal mind prison. Um, the liberal mind prison being the prison that even some leftists refuse to leave. It's very annoying. It's, it's, it hurts. It hurts me. It hurts me inside. What we should absolutely start with is what is the liberal mind prison? Uh-huh. Well, to define the liberal mind prison, we first have to describe what liberalism is. Um, Liberalism is basically the values of uh, freedom, equality, and capitalism, which sort of undermines the first two. 
Yeah, like you know how people say that we only think about theory, and that's basically what uh, liberals do. That they they theorize about freedom and equality, uh, but in practice they just do capitalism. <laughs> the liberal mind prison is basically not being able to see a better future, uh, a better system of how to do things. Uh, which I think everyone at a point that was a leftist and didn't have like a family that thought it was. At one point, at that point, but they escaped the liberal mind prison by seeing a better future, a better, a better tomorrow, a better way to do things. There's like multiple different layers of propaganda, right? Like you have the communism killed a hundred million gajillion people in the 20th century alone, right? It turns out communism actually killed 8.2 billion people. More people than there were ever on the planet. <laughs> At one time in the last 250 years, according to one Twitter user, right? Um, so, so you have that layer of propaganda, which is the first one. <laughs> um and then down below, you have, okay, well, maybe communism didn't kill everyone, but, you know, it, it has all the same pro problems that capitalism has, so it's not worth trying. Even even if you can make the argument that, like, capitalism sucks, it's not really working, um, there's all these inequalities. The last thing that people say before you really just say, let's not do capitalism anymore, is um, capitalism is bad, but it's it's the only system that works. No other system does. Life is just shit, and if life is shit, then you just got to deal with that, you know? We can never build a society that's actually where people actually, like, cooperate um, and coexist peacefully. That's just not a thing that can happen. People who believe this, they are convinced that they are the, the most rational and most pragmatic group of people in the world. They're so smart, they don't even need facts. Yeah. They have... They have their intuition, which has never been wrong in the history of humankind. To me, this is just actually the most naive thinking because it requires no thinking. It, it just sort of requires the belief that somehow history has just so happened to converge upon the best way of organizing the world. And like the way things are now are the way they are because they're the best. And you are just a passive agent along for the ride, you know, who just has to respect all the great and wonderful people from our ancestors, you know, the ancestors that started two world wars, you know, the Great Depression, um, multiple genocides, like those ancestors, they knew what they were talking about, right? Well, if you look at at, at history, uh, liberals might believe they they were wrong sometimes, or every time actually, but if you don't look at history, then that won't happen. Mm -hmm. Out of sight, out of mind. And that can sort of be what happened with the main character of Saga of Tanya the Evil. Let's actually like start by bringing up the main topic of today. The saga of Tanya the Evil. Who is this Tanya and what makes her evil? The, the, the show we want to talk about is <laughs> the saga of Tanya the Evil. Tanya is a, salary, a Japanese salaryman that basically got isekai you know. A topic I think Mo, it's really fresh. It's a really fresh topic, right, Mo? For you? Listen, don't don't talk to me about isekai. <laughs> don't don't talk to me about isekai. Okay, just don't. <laughs> but by the time bullshit Nuyusha comes out, um, isekai will be a trigger for me. <laughs> I'll I'll do tw slash slash isekai. <laughs> okay, but I mean the start of the manga and light novel is this, but it's actually the second episode of the anime, which actually changes a lot of stuff from the main source material. But basically, he fires a man 
uh, he believes has no value to the co- to the company that he's working at, and he has a family and he cannot feed them anymore. He basically uh, put in a, in a fit of anger. The person he fired pushes the salaryman, and then God stops time, and he says, ah, "Humans don't believe in me. Uh, why is that?" And he says, Be- "Because we have it too good," uh, <laughs> which really puts that person in a place of privilege because lots of people are suffering hardship in the world but he basically says all humans have it great right now and that's why people only believe in you god because of hardship which is not really true because there are a lot of societies that were well off that still believed in god uh, basically god then gets pissed off and isekai's him into the body of a little girl into 1917 uh, alternate history Germany where magic exists and for some reason uh, God basically gave him magic powers in this world as well which is a rarity and then I mean it's it's typical of Isakai yeah he wanted him to be weak in this world but for some reason he still gave hey, the main character superpowers in this world because not everyone can do magic in the world of Saga of Tiny and the Evil so it's it's a little weird that seems like a plot hole. I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. The biggest plot hole is that he doesn't start immediately sucking up to God. Because he was a hardcore atheist. But then he, he saw God. And even he... Okay, he's, he calls him being X. I, even if you believe that that was not God and he was just a really powerful being. A salary man that lived his whole life in pursuit on, of money and status will probably suck up to a being, and I, I'm using he uh, male pronouns because, well, in the anime, the anime doesn't really get into that stuff. Uh, in the manga, it's much more explicit that Tanya believes he is a man, and it's really annoyed uh, to to be called female. Although it, he is conflicted about it, but his preference, I think, will, will be to be called by male pronouns, even if it's just despite being ex, because. He, uh, he turned him into a little girl. So the liberal main prison is basically Tanya does not have really good morals. Let's say uh, she just wants to have a quiet life. You know, Tanya just wants quiet life inside the capital. But he gets pulled to basically be in the in front of the war because of his sky magic aptitude, uh, despite being a little girl. And in the manga, this is also more explicit, but. Basically, the empire that she's part of, as she's in, in the Germany of, like, before Nazi Germany, that's where uh, Tanya is. It's World War One Germany, so... Yeah. World War One Germany is the German Empire. Then it becomes the Weimar Republic. Then it becomes Nazi Germany. Then it comes East and West. Listen, I know, I know history. I know things. So I wanted... I haven't seen... Every episode is on the evil, but I was trying to, I was quickly scrambling to get some of the screenshots from the parts that I have seen to perhaps help us in this conversation here. Um, so our, our protagonist, Tanya, has like this obsession with like rule following. He says he, he fires people because it's his job to fire people. Then he goes to like a militaristic imperialist empire 
World War One is an imperialist war. We can get into that or not. But World War One was the war in which most socialist literature on imperialism was written. Yes. Um, from Lenin to um, Koto Kishisui. So then he, he basically goes to an imperialist empire and he like follows the rules there too. How does Tanya the Evil like deal with this? And how does it play into the idea of the liberal mind prison that we want to talk about? The main character's like uh, beliefs basically is that following the rules... Uh, it's basically the best way for the world to be and for everything to, to be, so, so to have a good life and to have a good world. His concept of good is basically following the rules and getting the best thing you can do, uh, which is very liberal uh, mindset. His worldview is follow the rules and do the best you can to uh, get ahead in life. And and that's good. Like, greed is good, you know, that, that mindset. If I become successful, it's because I follow the rules and the rules were just, so I followed them. And when we were talking about this before, you talked about uh, Tanya as like a capitalist hero. How does that lead into that? Yeah, Tanya is a capitalist hero because she, Tanya follows the rules exactly as they're told. But sometimes he finds loopholes to commit war crimes because that's still within the rules. Like uh, there was what one point where they asked for visas. I mean, the rules allow war crimes. That's it's probably written for that purpose. Let, let me show some examples that are, are best uh, exemplified. Like in episode 5, they, they give a warning to the whole city to basically uh, tell them that if they do not surrender right now, a- any civilians that are still inside will be counted as enemy combatants. And that just lets them be free inside the city and just kill as many civilians as they want. The Empire, that is. A- another example will be... In, in the same episode is when Tanya forces a soldier uh, to kill enemy soldiers that are essential for uh, civ- enemy civilians to escape. Okay, so first he says they will just become an enemy later and that's why we should kill them. But then he clarifies that the only reason he's doing it is because uh, he's just following the rules and that's why he's going to kill people essential for the survival of the civilians. How would you say uh, Tanya the Evil um, perpetuates this idea that, like, there is no alternative uh, to the uh, current ever-present hellscape that is the way things are organized right now? Well, I guess my first question before we even get to that is we should reiterate, how does Tanya the Evil frame these actions and how does it perpetuate the idea that there is no alternative? Well, yeah, we'll put no alternative on the back burner and talk about framing first. Uh, the framing is basically a necessary <laughs> necessary evil, basically. Um, that basically this is the this, this is the best way to do things, even if they could be considered evil. Like it's never it's never stated why the war started. It just it's just happening. I, I guess if we go by history standards, it's because of uh, Germany um, basically had problems with they wanted to expand and be imperialist like Britain and the other nations. But because they were more closed off, they could not be as imperialist as the other nations, <laughs> and so they started the war. Um, well, the first world war is. It was going to happen anyway. Like many people put, like the oh, if the Archduke never died, then World War One will have never happened, and that's not really true. Like it will have still happened. It was just a really lucky accident for all the people to start the war. 
it just because let's say Hitler was never uh, kicked out of art school that doesn't mean uh, Nazi Germany would have never happened we, we have a tendency to uh, with history ascribe certain things to like individual people who like make decisions and and sometimes okay there really was just like one person who decided to do things wrong but like 99% of the time, like th there were movements. European anti-Semitism was a several hundred year old project, right? That culminated uh, in the Holocaust. White supremacy, nationalism, imperialism. Like if you, if, you, if you look at, for example, like what the Nazis were writing about at the time, they were like, you know what's really great? Segregation, like in America. Like <laughs> there, were, there were lots of other people who also thought segregation was pretty dope, right? Changing history requires more than just uh, the single person. I, I want to keep teasing at how the show frames um, actions. Like, go further elaborate on some of the atrocities that uh, our protagonists commit, supposedly in the name of either survival, in the name of it's actually right, etc., uh, etc. Et one, one is scene that's really portrayed as really cool and clever is when Tanya basically, he has to, like, uh, warn people before, before the squadron can begin attack on a factory, by law, they have to warn the people so they can get out and not get killed. The the loophole that is to basically use uh, the most childlike voice possible, so everyone inside the factory thinks that it's just a little a little girl joking about committing mass murder on all of them, so they can get trapped inside. And the show frame frames it as a really clever and good thing that Tanya did, which is. It's really weird, you know, because it, it's meant to get you like cheering and clapping or maybe laughing at the comedy of the action. But it's really, it's really a bad action to commit war crimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we all agree. Yeah. I mean, you, you could make the argument like I always try to play devil's advocate just to. I'm not saying because you watch Danny of Saga of Danny the Evil that you believe all the things Tanya does are good or because... I think from, I think if you just watch the series, it's, I can understand why you will like it, uh, even if it's kind, it kind of doesn't critique capitalism or anything, and it doesn't have to, but it's, it's just really weird the way it, think, it does things. But the, the main thing that, that pissed me off was the movie. That's, that's the main thing that I want to talk about with the liberal mind prison, because Oftentimes, liberals often conflate, you know, horseshoe theory. Uh, they, they conflate communists with Nazis, which could not be further apart. I mean, they're, they're, they're literally two opposite things. Yeah. They, they killed each other. Yeah. Uh, they, they, had, they had camps in which they would, you know, annihilate each other. And, you know, one of them is an ideology that is good. And the other one is one of the most evil ideas that, that humanity has ever uh, conceived of in the history of the world. So, you know, <laughs> different things. Communism and Nazism are. Yeah. So, so Tanya has knowledge of the real world. The manga makes this more clear because in the manga it says German Empire or the allegory of it was basically really conservative, except for one thing. And that one thing was accepting females into the army. And, and that's the... Which is really weird when you think about it, which doesn't make much sense. But in the movie, um, yeah, when Tanya sees the communists, he basically says they're really authoritarian. But isn't his entire ideology just enforcing rules strictly and uh, individually raising himself in a in a hierarchy to survive. That's not the way the show sees it, of course. Yeah, no, he, he says that they're evil because they're totalitarian, uh, just straight up. And it's never brought up how totalitarian the empire is. Like, 
the the main base while they they are shown to have problems it's more like a human error kind of way because the the, the biggest criticism that they have is that they were partying when they should have been planning to kill the opposing army uh, that's the biggest uh, criticism that main base gets all the authoritarianism and lack of choice that people get in the empire is never really brought up like it's just a part of things in the communist society of society of Daniel Evil, then there, then it's bad because of that Talianism. It, it wouldn't be bad, you know, but it's an allegory for communists. And <laughs> it's like really weird that it, it doesn't look inside themselves. But that's not the worst part, which is still pretty bad. The main leader of the communist party is portrayed as a pedophile. Who, who, when he sees Tanya, who looks like a little girl, he instantly just wants to capture what he thinks is a little girl who, who is actually a, a, a man. And that's the leader of the communist nation in the movie. I have to say, before doing this conversation, I'm a, I'm a little surprised um, at how this show ended up. Because at least, and maybe I'll try and find the interviews where I, where I got this from. But as far as I know, like the 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 person who who wrote Saga Tani Evil like doesn't like Nazis very much like there's a reason why th- th- he like didn't want the Germans to be like too identifiable with Nazis and and so on and so forth I'm not really sure he succeeded uh, <laughs> based on what we talked about there is no Adolf Hitler in Saga of Tani the Evil it's just command yeah and they're just portrayed as as people that the better you are at just seeing people as numbers and taking away the humanity, the better you are at war. Which might be true in some sense, but actually doesn't really help you with preventing war. Well, interestingly enough about um, Saga Tani the Evil, like, I don't think the show thinks that there's such a thing. At least in this universe, there's not going to war. It's just not like an option. And I, and I, I think that's, really, that's a really interesting thing to note um, because the show puts you in a situation it puts the protagonist in a situation in which the only thing he could have done was to join the army otherwise he would have started and like the only thing he can do now is continue to fight in an endless war to continue to get stronger to continue to exploit people to continue to to kill people like the very idea that we can do better than this um, it's not brought up it's not it's not really entertained and during actual world war one um believe it or not like communists were pretty active and the main role that communists did in World War One was to demand that it stop being fought. And it was not like a, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important. Because um, communists were like a big reason why World War One stopped fighting. The communist revolution in Russia pulled Russia out of World War One. Um, the, com- the failed communist revolution in Germany helped lead to Germany's surrender. And it also led to uh, the stab in the back myth that the Nazis had where Jews and communists were the reason why Germany lost the war. Communist revolutions in Ireland after World War I, like, in, in, in actuality, there's always an option, right? I guess the point I'm trying to say. There's always the ability to not be in perpetual war. In the liberal mind prison, the, all of those things, just they just don't exist. The only thing that exists is war and pain, suffering, and you just have to do the best that you can for yourself. At one point in the series, uh, just to add to that point, uh, uh, Tanya says that in the modern world, we do not have wars anymore. No, not this girlfriend, at least. Tanya says that wars are not 
profitable and that's why we don't have them anymore which is completely untrue because words can be extremely profitable not for the whole country as a whole but if you know anything about the war industrial complex you know that there are many people that are making a lot of money by selling weapons and perpetuating an endless war basically so yeah it, it just there's a lot of things about like history and politics that tanya the evil like does not understand <laughs> I, I mainly want to talk about how offended i was because of the movie because uh, another thing that happens is that basically uh, the communists are the ones that perform eugenics in this world of saga of tanya the evil like i said before uh, there are mages in this world which is not something everyone can be it's something you're born with. And what the communists did was eradicate every mage that they have because they saw them as unpure people, which is one of the stupidest things I, I have ever seen in a piece of literature because that's part of the liberal mind prison because of conflating basically communists with Nazis. I think that's part of the liberal mind prison is to just, just see every extreme as the same. And because... The communists inside of Tanya the Evil are basically just Nazis, in all but name. So my, my main point on the liberal mind prison, well, basically it says capitalism is good because if people went by profit motive, we will not have wars, which is untrue. Yeah, so it, it's definitely a weird take. Like, Yeah, it says that in the past, wars were profitable and that's why they happened. Yeah, like, yeah, World War One was like a bourgeois war. <laughs> It says that, but in the future that we are now, uh, wars are not profitable, which is untrue. Just like the the general implication that the profit motive naturally leads to like the best outcome for all people, which is an idea that is so uh, laughably untrue. Um, an idea that I feel like even children understand is not true. It's it's a little weird how many people believe this. Maybe maybe we're just surrounded by like actual like children. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the world is run by children. I think if children run the world, it would be a better place because they understand a little better morality than the people running it, I think. Oh, absolutely. If you ask a child, this person doesn't have a home, uh, they will probably tell you, well, we should give them a home, you know. But a, a liberal or a capitalist uh, will tell you, no, we cannot give them a home because they have not earned having a home. Um, I don't know if Saga of the Enable actually tells you to, like, uh, the profit motive is always good, but it tells you that people will always go for the profit motive. In, in the past, that led to war, but in the future, war does not happen anymore, which is untrue. Right. Talking about World War One, I, I, I think even leftists make this problem, but in hindsight, kind of because, like, a lot of the leftist thinkers during World War One, like... They didn't really go outside of the country because that was hard and expensive. So they didn't really write about, like... Like, Marx wrote a lot, but while he was in England, he didn't write about, like, like the colonial aspect of the bourgeoisie, right? It, it would take discovering communists who were actually on the receiving end of that. Korean communists, um, Japanese communists, Ch Chinese communists, to actually, like, figure out what was happening. So, so we, we kind of tend... To see, like, even in, like, the original graphic that we get for the saga Tanya the Evil, like, I think in the second episode, um, they show, like, the war happening in Europe. 
but like actual World War One was not just Europe. Japan was at least involved. It was it was doing a colonialism, you know. I, when I watched this for the first time, I was still like a, a liberal, and I was still in that mindset. So that's why it's so close to me because it basically reinforced all the all the thinking I had. Because it's it says that a lot of things are random, you know, and it never questions the system itself. It just says that's the way it is, and we should do the best we can to have a good life in this system and never to actually change the system for the better. Tanya never wants to like uh, go against the empire or to change the way the empire works to have a better life. He is very non-political in that sense, I guess. Um, He is just following orders and trying to, to get the best ranking possible while still not appealing to a being being X who is essentially god and he constantly goes against him despite being a salary man that that wants that wants a quiet life and wants status and he's not appealing to the literal god in the movie there is this u.s allegory or united nations that are basically the good guys to oppose the communist which is just sort of backwards if you look at real history but that's part of the liberal mind prison i guess and Basically, the good guys are led by Marie Suix. If you listen closely, you can see that it's basically trying to say Marie Sue. And the reason uh, she is called Marie Suix is because she received triple blessings, essentially, by all the gods. It's it's more explicit in the manga, uh, but in the anime, it's you can still see that she was blessed wa- by God. The same way Tanya was, but in a more potent way, because being ex or God wants to go against Tanya. A lot of this is tying into the same themes of End of History, which we discussed extensively in our bit on Boku no Hero Academia, if you want to expand on that a little bit. I listened to that podcast and it was really good. Um, I would just like to add that we, the viewers, have a lot of perspective on how society is wrong. And the villains also have this perspective, especially uh, Shigaraki, the, the main villain of the series, was basically he is one of the closest people to have like uh, seen all the evils of society. I don't want to spoil his backstory, but but instead of trying to have a revolution, is he just becomes evil because society just broke him that much. And, but Deku never has never really seen the hardships of why society is bad. The closest he comes to is to see Todoroki's uh, life story. But even then, there is the Endeavor Redemption arc, which I'll be honest, at the beginning, I was fine with it. I thought it, it explored it in a good way. But like the more flashbacks that are brought up, the better Endeavor was in the past. In the beginning, he was just shown like a, an evil guy. When he starts to get his redemption, he starts becoming good in the past. If you understand what I'm saying, with remembering the flowers and everything. And in the future arcs, there will be more flashbacks. And he will be shown as being an even better dad than before. Which is not the way you do a redemption arc with making a, a character good in the past. But basically, Deku never sees the perspective of why society is bad or why society wrongs people. He just sees, believes that the status quo is the best thing ever. And All Might is an allegory for the fiction that people think police is. Because uh, essentially All Might is like a, a great force that deters villains uh, from doing crimes. Which is 
that's the fictional universe that people think police are. Like, the bigger and stronger the police are, the less criminals there will be. Hero Aka, in a nutshell, I want to uh, thank you for coming on and thank you for dealing with the delays and the uh, time zone. So, for I think I can share this for for people who don't know, um, Raghava and Titan have a twelve hour time difference, <laughs> so there is literally no good time <laughs> to do a conversation <laughs> because when it is morning for Titan. It is the middle of the night for Raghavan. <laughs> but we made it work. I, I didn't really think much about um, Saga Tani Di, but I just, I thought it was the the weird anime from Isekai Quartet. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought your familiarity with it to the podcast, and I'm glad you helped me understand it a lot better. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for listening to what I think were more ramblings that... Uh... A structure. It always is. It always is. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> thank, th- thank you, Ragaba, for staying up so late for me. <laughs> Do you want to plug the things, Titan, one last time? You said you had a podcast. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah. I have a the menacing podcast. Um, you can listen to it if you want to hear really bad stuff. Uh, but on the same channel, I'll, I'll also be making. Videos on Attack on Titan and all this other stuff. I also want to have talk about the media that's popular to get more clicks <laughs> because we all live in this capitalist hellscape. Clicks are nice, validation is nice, monies are nice. All right, then uh, we will check you guys later. <laughs> <laughs>